All right. Hey, good morning. Good morning. I'm Dave. Uh, we're welcoming Amped Blend. Good morning out in Roan County. Todd and folks out there down in Bearden. Good morning, Nate and your crew down there. Uh, if you're visiting with us, any of our campuses here at Harrison Lane, here in live, uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Jude. We're in a series where we're looking at some pretty uh, obscure letters in the New Testament, one chapter letters that are letters that have a point. And so we started in Philemon. Uh, we went through Philemon over two weeks, and now we're going to spend two weeks in Jude. And so you, if you're not familiar where Jude is, go to the book of Revelation and, and turn left, all right? Go to Revelation, turn left. And we're going to be talking about foundations this week. Uh, my family moved here over 12 years ago. And after we got through the disaster, which was selling a house back in Illinois, uh, we decided we were going to try and find a spot where we could build a house here. And so we had found a lot, and we were considering building a house on this lot, and then we decided not to and went a totally different direction. And uh, I know the builder who ended up building on that lot. And I was talking to him one day, and he said, he said to me, you can be so glad that you didn't build on that lot. The deeper we dug trying to find where we could put the foundation, the deeper we had to dig. The, we thought the price of the foundation was going to be a certain amount, and it was more than double of that because we just had to keep digging so that we could put the foundation on something solid. When we build buildings, foundations are really important. In fact, there's lots of factors when they build really tall building of how deep the foundation has to go. But a general truth is the taller the building, the deeper the foundation needs to be. And so uh, as we talk about building our faith, we're, we're talking about a foundation. In fact, Jesus, in a very famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, that, that he said this, this is in Matthew chapter 7, he said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then he goes on to talk about that the storms came and the waves came and they, they, they could not take down that house, but there was a foolish man and that man built his house upon the sand. And when the waves came and the rains came, the foundation was washed away and the house collapsed. That's what he says. That's how important a foundation based upon who Jesus is and what Jesus says is to following Jesus. And so what we're going to see this week as we jump into Jude is that if we're going to live out the life of following Jesus, living it out requires a deep foundation. This is the life we're called to by Jesus. It's not a shallow life. It's not an effortless life. It requires that we make an investment in having depth of our foundation, both in understanding the living word who is Jesus and, and the way that we, we understand more and more about who Jesus is, is through a personal relationship, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and having a conversation with Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay, we call that prayer. That's a primary way. But another primary way is through understanding who Jesus is through the written word we call scripture. And, and it requires that we have depth of foundation. If we're going to have that 
It requires that we make an investment. And, the, and there's some letters in the, in the New Testament, two of them in particular, Jude and, and Revelation, that require that we have a deep understanding of the Old Testament if we're going to understand what the author is talking about. Okay, we're going to talk about Revelation. We did a series in Revelation. I point you back to that if you have any interest in Revelation. That is, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you have no idea what's going on in Revelation. That's true. And if we don't understand the Old Testament, we have no idea what's going on in Jude. But here, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version this weekend. All right? Sound good? All right. So here we go. Jude, Jude is writing, and Jude is, he says, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed too long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Out of the gate, Jude is setting up the problem. And first and foremost, there's going to be a couple things that we've talked about in the past. And if you visited with us, I want to point you back to a series that we did through January. We were talking about what the Bible is. Because we're going to talk about a couple things in the letter of Jude that we covered in that series. And they're going to be important. And one of them that we talked about already in this series is that we have to understand the context to which a letter is written if we're going to understand the letter. But if we take the shortcut, we end up misapplying the letter. And this is what a lot of followers of Jesus do. We just read it and go, well, let me apply that to my life. And so this is a nuance, but it's an important context. He's writing to followers of Jesus. This is huge. He's not writing to Roman culture. He, he's, he's writing to a group of believers. And what he said is, in the midst of you, in your local churches, in your community of faith, there's people who have crept in that, that are teaching a grace that is contrary to the truth. They, he uses the word perverted it. They have perverted grace. And, and what is it that they have done? They have said that, that the way you act can be disconnected from what you believe. This is a pretty strong letter. He's saying there's a group of people that have crept in and, and he, they're teaching you that it doesn't matter what you do. What you do can be totally disconnected from, from if you've accepted Jesus, right, in our, in our modern day language, that, that you can do whatever it is you want to do. He said, no, be careful because these are the people that, that from long ago were, were ungodly people that have been designated for condemnation. Here's the truth for us as we look to building a deep foundation. A deep foundation begins with submission to Jesus. And now there's a word in our culture we don't dig, right? I, I don't know about you, but that word submit, all right, doesn't matter, man, woman, nobody wants to submit, right? Like, I don't want to submit to anybody about anything. I don't want to put myself under anyone, right? I want to I, you know, to quote Jason Kelsey, I want to fight for my right to party, man. I, I, want, 
I want what I want when I want it. To place myself under the submission of another person, it's, it's not something that comes naturally to us as humans. But this is what Jude points to out of the gate. And so um, as he begins, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. But notice he doesn't say that. He connects that through James, who is also a half-brother of Jesus. There's four half-brothers, and and we say half-brothers because why? Because God is the father of Jesus, and Mary is his mother, and so Joseph was was, a weird relationship. Let's just say, yeah, he's the father, but not really, okay? Jesus is unique in all of humanity, and so Jude is, he's a brother to Jesus. He's a half-brother, but he says that he's a servant. Now, now in that word, and... In the beginning of your Bible, if you have a, an ESV Bible, they're, they're going to describe why they use that word servant. And it's because the actual word that should be used here is so charged. It, it's such a, a word that's misunderstood and charged in our culture because of the, the history that we have and, and the stain on our history that slavery is that, that we can't talk about the actual word. And sometimes you'll hear Bible teachers that will try to explain away the slavery that was in the Bible to the slavery that existed in um, America and around the world throughout all history. And I, I've said this before, I keep saying it, trying to explain it, but through all of human history, slavery has existed still to this day, still thing, okay? And it's people owning people. It's people treating people as personal property. The the, the slavery that was going on in the Old Testament and then into the New Testament is not a different type of slavery. It's people owning people as personal property. And that is a negative thing. But this is interesting. As the, both Paul and, and the, the New Testament authors, as they're writing this letters, Jude, they use it as a point of boasting. He's saying, hey, I want you to know something. I'm a slave to Jesus. Now, that's interesting. He claims as a matter out of the gate, you need to know the person who it is that I belong to. And then he says, what distinguishes me from those people who have crept into the church is they deny our master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Those are two different words that describe a slave relationship. They have not submitted themselves to being owned by Jesus. Now, it begins with a statement of humility on on Jude's part. He doesn't just say, hey, I have authority because I was, he's my brother. Like, like, he's my brother. I I know him as well as anybody knows him. He doesn't claim that. He says that, that, that I belong to him. And that's a, that's a mark of humility, but it's more than that. When, when you belong to someone, you become a representative of theirs. And that even though you may be their property, you still represent them. And so as he writes this letter, the authority that he has is based on the fact that he belongs to Jesus. I'm writing this to you to encourage you that that there's been people who've come into your midst. And this is important, right? He's talking about people in the church. Okay, folks, drive this one home, write it in your notes. Everything that he's talking about are people 
in the church. You mean like this is a nuance. It's an essential nuance. Now, just talking about here, this letter to Jude, right? This letter is about people in the church because it's gonna be really easy when we start talking about some stuff as we're going on for us to take our eyes off of us, people in the community of faith, and start looking around at culture around us because it's gonna get really easy for us to go, yep, they're out of alignment, they're out of alignment, they're out of alignment, they're out of alignment, and Judah isn't even talking about that. He's not talking about the Roman Empire and how corrupt they are. He's not talking about the revolution that's getting ready to go down. He's not talking about, although it was written around the same time that there was a Jewish revolt that went on between AD 66 and AD 70, that's somewhere around the time it's believed that Jude wrote this letter. He's not advocating for an overthrow of the government. He's advocating that you would guard your hearts and minds against people who are coming in and saying that the grace of God doesn't change how you live. That, that, that you can experience the grace of God and still do whatever it is that you want to do. He's saying, don't allow that to creep in. Don't allow that to enter into your midst. And so that's what he's saying to be on the lookout for. Within the community of faith, look out for people who are saying they're perverting grace and saying it doesn't matter what you do. Grace is free. Live however you want to live. And the way that you're going to hear it explained often in the Christian community is Jesus is love. That's it. There's no gospel as the way the gospel is presented in the scriptures, which is presented as grace allows us to submit to the authority of Jesus. It's grace that allows us to humble ourselves and become a possession of Jesus. This is good news. Some of you are like, man, that sounds terrible. No, this is good news. That's where life is found. In submission to Jesus is where we find life. It's where we find freedom. It's it's where we're going to finally discover the thing that it is that we're looking for in life. So, So here he says, watch out for the ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God and sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, this letter is written to a group of people who had a certain worldview. And I'm going to refer you back to the series that we did in January at this point and talk about um, there's something that we talked about as scripture developed that there was writing during a time frame that we call the second temple period. And you're like, do I really need to know this? You really need to don't know this. As a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that there was a time frame called the second temple period. And so as the Jewish people came out of exile, as they came back to Jerusalem and they reestablished the temple that, was, that had been destroyed, it's now called the second temple. And so from the period of about 400 years before Jesus until about 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, there was a group of writings that we call second temple writings. And one of those second temple writings that we talked about back in January was something called the Septuagint that was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's important that you would know that because there's a book in the Septuagint called Enoch And Jude's about ready to refer to it throughout the rest of this letter. He's getting ready to refer to a second temple writing that's totally unfamiliar to us. 
that we don't spend much time talking about. First Enoch is, is an end times, an apocalyptic liter, uh, letter that, that's written, that connects a lot of Old Testament texts together. It's a fascinating and bizarre book. Not considered scripture, but it informed the worldview of our New Testament authors. And so both Peter and Jude, in those three letters, they use this book, First Enoch. And he's going to start alluding to it very soon, right now. So in Jude chapter 5, it says, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, three examples, boom, boom, boom. All Old Testament examples that, that he refers back to, and notice that he says, Jesus. Now, you may have a translation of the Bible that says, Lord, and this is an example of one of the things that we talked about when we talked about how the Bible developed over time, and we talk about different text streams that this one in particular is one where where now most recent scholarship would say the best translation here isn't lord but jesus that 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 jude is linking it together jude has a very high the word is christology like a very high view of jesus and he's linking jesus back into the exodus and into the wilderness wandering saying that 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 the Yahweh of the Exodus, that that is a pre-incarnate Jesus. And he's linking it together. And then he goes on and he refers to something that's in Genesis chapter six, um, it's one through four. Write that in your margin because your Bible doesn't give you that as a cross-reference. And that's, there's no doubt, okay? There's no doubt that this is an allusion to Genesis six, one through four, as presented in First Enoch. Okay, this is not disputed. But you're, you're, uh, the, the author, I mean, the editors of your Bible, they get really nervous when, when biblical authors start quoting or alluding to what we would consider non-scriptural texts. And so they don't give you that little cross-reference. But it's a reference to that. And here was the view in, in First Enoch that, that you have, it's fascinating to read, that you have a group of angels who agreed together that they were going to uh, leave their place of authority, that they were going to go ahead and they were going to come to women, human, human women, and that they would have sex with human women, and that there were children then that were born to them. They're called the giants, the Nephilim. And this was the view of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in Judaism. This was, and you, okay, I just want to explain something real quick. If we say this was the view in Judaism, there's never anything that is the singular view. It's like saying this is the view in Christianity. And we'll all be like, okay, according to who? And so who, was, who were the people that had this view? They were the educated people, the people who could read and write, the people who wrote Second Temple literature. This was their view. 
And the view that they had was that, that there had been a group of angels who, when they interpreted Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that, that the people being talked about there weren't humans, that these were angelic beings who had come to humans, okay? And that was the rebellion, and when you read Genesis 6, 1 through 4 that way, it's followed immediately by the flood, all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. Like it, it makes way more sense than in the second and third centuries, Judaism said, no, it's not referring to angelic beings. It's talking about humans. It's talking about the rulers of humans. And then the, the Christian faith continued to see it as angelic beings all the way up to like the, the third, fourth, fifth century. And then the, the common view became, no, not possibly talking about angelic beings, talking about humans. But as we look back, Second Temple, the, the Jude, he's talking about angelic beings. And so why is that important? Because in the very next example, Sodom and Gomorrah is about angelic beings. It's about human men wanting to have sex with angelic beings. This is the way they think, and it's important that we understand that because understand that because it's not just reducing this to, oh, do or don't have sex. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about rejecting the very structure that God has put in place. This is about a danger that comes when we reject God's authority structure. This is the danger. This is the danger that Jude is warning these followers of Jesus. He might as well be standing up and shouting at him. Warning, warning, danger, danger. There's a cliff ahead. Don't jump off the cliff. Now, this, through this whole letter, he's not telling them to fight about it. He's just saying, guard your hearts and minds. Make sure that you know this is going on. If someone comes to you and says that it's okay, that you can do whatever it is that you want to do, as long as Jesus will forgive you, you're good. Don't believe the lie. And so here's the principle. A deep foundation builds upon God's story. These examples require that we would have a familiarity with the Old Testament. Because this would be like in, in our culture. If I were to say to you uh, an event, and that I'm not saying these are, are like events, okay? I just, the best illustration I could come up with. There's certain events that we can talk about within our culture that we know what happened-ish in those events. And so if we were to say Pearl Harbor, many of us would know that what happened. What happened on Pearl Harbor? Some of us know it so well that we can say the date that we could say it happened on December 7th, and we're like, oh, I know December 7th. I know what happened on that date. I, I get that. I know what happened on that day. Others of us go, I don't know the story that well, but man, I, I know Pearl Harbor. And some of you young folks, like, ask your parents later, what's Pearl Harbor? Like, what happened then? 9-11. We can go, okay, okay, 9-11. Okay, I know, I know what happened. These are how these stories are for the audience Jude's writing to. They know the story and they're examples of human rebellion against God's authority structure. And then he keeps rolling. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. He's talking now about these people who've invaded their community, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. 
But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, in your margin, we don't have time to dig into this one. This is from something called the Testament of Moses. He gives another second temple writing that he's referring to here. You're not going to find this in your Bible. Okay, he's just referring to another common view of what was going on in the culture. And then he goes on to say, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Man, you talk about giving you some examples rapid fire. It's, it's the way of Cain, and then it's going on, it's, it's Balaam's heir, and then the judgment of Korah, he, the, it, that these are the common examples of judgment that come when you rebel against Yahweh. They know these stories. Rebellion brings judgment, and it brings destruction, and so if you're out for yourself, and, and somehow, some way, these false teachers, they were in it for their own gain. They were in it so that they could could uh, just uh, either satisfy the desire of their flesh or they were in it for greed. They were in it for something that was beyond the gospel. And then Jude goes and he does something that can be troubling, all right? If we don't know anything about uh, the book of First Enoch, what he does now is absolutely fascinating. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last times that there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Now, in that phrase, in the last time, this is really important for us. Because often when we think of in the last time, when do we think? We think Revelation, end of times. This is, this is going to be a sign of the times and, and the days in which we live. We should be looking for these ungodly teachers invading the church, but that isn't what Jude is talking about. When he's talking about in these last times, he's talking about the days in which he lives. He's saying, hey, warning, they told us that. Who told us? The prophets from long ago and the apostles, the, either through the scripture that had already been written at that point or through the proclamation that, that the apostles, as they traveled and they declared the good news of the kingdom of God, that they were warning that there's going to be within the community of faith people who rise up and they're teaching a perverted grace, a perverted grace that says 
just Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do. Some of you, I just made you really uncomfortable. I made you really uncomfortable. Because the message is just Jesus, okay? There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. But there is, it does seem from Jude, a very much a call. If you just, if you accept Jesus, if you submit your life to Jesus, you can't just do whatever it is that you want to do. If you've encountered the grace of Jesus, you will place yourself under the submission to Jesus. You will no longer say, it's okay that I would act just like everyone else in the culture in which I live. There's a call to transformation. I have, I have some friends, and, and they, they would probably stand up and be like, oh, that sounds like works salvation. And it is not works-based salvation. It's saying, if we're going to submit our lives to the truth of Scripture, it sure seems like the false gospel says, Jesus doesn't care how you live. The point of this book seems to be, Jesus cares. There's a call to transformation that you just can't pursue everything that you think is right in your eyes. That's a message that begins at the beginning of scripture and goes to the end that if I just pursue what is right in my eyes, if I just pursue what I want, if I just reject scripture, that's rejecting God. And so there's, there's this submission that we're called to. Now, Jude does something super cool, okay? And this, this is the best explanation that I found on why he uses 1 Enoch 1.9. He takes, and what he does is he uses this book that's in the Septuagint that the author of links together a bunch of Old Testament texts. It's a really, it's a compilation of different Old Testament prophecies that have been kind of mishmashed together, amalgamated, right? They've been joined together. And in particular, it's 1 Enoch 1.9 is what gets quoted. And here's what he does. The, the author of 1 Enoch takes and links together Jeremiah 25, 30 and 31, Isaiah 66, 15 and 16, and Zechariah 14.5. He mashes them together. And as he mashes them together, it's a really cool shortcut. Jude is not a long letter. He's not spending a lot of time expounding on these illustrations. But there is a a biblical author who does. And this week, in Live It Out on Tuesday, you're going to read 2 Peter chapter 2. And what Peter does is he takes these same examples and he gives you a little bit more. He, He expounds on them a little bit. But Judah's just going, man, he's just going. It's, it's this, it's this, it's this. And this one does what? In each one of these passages, that it's Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who is the actor in those passages. And Jude links the Yahweh of these Old Testament prophecies with Jesus. And so in a very simple kind of way, here, here's what... Um, Gene Green, he's a commentator that explains this. It's a commentary I would recommend on Jude. He said, Jude has taken a passage that speaks of a divine theophany. It's just a, 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 a um, divine theophany is that, that God shows up in human form and has transformed it into a passage that refers to the advent of Christ or the birth of Jesus, that, that the coming of Jesus. And so it's not crazy or obscure that he would quote them. It's the way they thought. 
it all gets meshed together into a worldview. And so for us, as we think about um, putting this into motion, it can seem overwhelming. I just gave you a lot of information. Some of you right now, you're swimming, going, woo! I'm not sure what just happened, but there's a lot going on right there. And the reason is, there's a lot going on right there. And, and you're like, you said you were gonna give us the Cliff Notes version. I gave you the ultra Cliff Note versions. If you wanna Bible geek out, Jude is a great book to Bible geek out. Like, it's over and over. I, I bought a commentary for this, and I was like, Oh my goodness, it's one of the thickest commentaries I think that I probably now own on Jude because there's a lot to it. And so if your head's swimming, welcome to the club. But it makes us ask questions like what's true, what's false, and who's a false teacher? And so we need to distinguish between the false teachers that Jude is writing about and, and people who are maybe are just bad teachers. Notice he's not talking about doctrine any step in here, nowhere. Is he talking about like doctrinal beliefs? He's not talking about people that you might have a dispute with when it comes to a, a certain belief system. No, he's talking about the people who stand out by their lives that they are in it for greedy gain and selfishness. Now, I'm going to give you with, with great reluctance, but I, I'm gonna give you a real world example. When it comes to churches, we wanna partner together. When we see our community, we wanna partner together. When, when we see... Um, churches around us, we want to partner together, but there's going to be churches along the way that, that we would say that they are preaching a false gospel. And, and, and the false gospel is one that doesn't call you to transformation once you come to faith in Christ. In our culture, Christian culture, churches that would advocate that, that sexual immorality doesn't matter that we couldn't possibly partner with those churches. Churches that would say that, that, that same-sex marriage, that they can build a biblical case for same-sex marriage, that's not a church that we could partner with. And, and this is very strong, I understand that. But they are preaching a false gospel. It's not just a different worldview. It, it's one that's saying that, that Jesus can't change people. In fact, now the cultural trend is that if you say that Jesus changes people, that's now considered abusive talk. Okay, that's a problem. Jesus changes people. This is good news. The very good news of the gospel has been perverted into bad news. And so we couldn't possibly partner with churches who are proclaiming a false gospel saying, well, God is love and everybody's loved and love is love. Yeah, under submission to Christ. And Jesus brings transformation. Now with that, here's the but. We couldn't possibly partner with churches who proclaim that truth. Jude is not talking about the culture. And this is what we do, and, and we hammer this all the time because there's a huge disconnect in the American church when we take something that God has written to people who've encountered the grace of Jesus and then says the rest of the world needs to act right. That is a gospel-less message. Only Jesus brings transformation, and it comes after faith. I'm gonna go to a real-world example. Uh, um, the gets, uh, Jesus Gets Us commercial, it's all like everybody's up in the uh, Super Bowl and how, and everybody's got to, like, people, calm down. Calm down. Christians need to calm down. 
How is it bad that we would take somebody who doesn't know Jesus and wash their feet? This is not bad. There's a gospel message in that. Now with that, I think there's plenty of things that they get wrong. But the love of Christ in a tangible way to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, but many people have it backwards and they're like, well, these people don't know Jesus, but they gotta clean themselves up before they can meet Jesus. That is an inverted gospel. It's a perverted gospel just as much as people saying it doesn't matter what you do. We pervert the gospel when we say, save yourself through your actions. Now you can come to Jesus. And that's the message when we go into culture and we say, change yourself. That's not the message. The message is, come to Jesus And then once they've come to Jesus, then we trust that the Holy Spirit does all the transformation that's going on in a person's life. It's called learning to follow Jesus. This is our call. This is our invitation. This is the good news. Now, here's the thing. You've heard heard preachers before give you this illustration about how do we know what's fake, you know? To know the fake, we must know the real. And they talk about um, money and uh, how many people have heard this illustration before? All right, you can participate. You've heard preacher before talk about the way that you know money is counterfeit is you know the real thing. That's how they train people. But it's far more in-depth than that. It's not just like you hand somebody a $20 bill and they just hang out with that $20 bill and then they get to know, okay, this is now in the fake $20 bill. No, there's ongoing education and lots of investment in resources and time and training. And then they give them tools, right? They give them little markers that do things. And, and the counterfeiters are always changing what they're doing. And so the counterfeit bill is always changing. And so they're, they're showing them new counterfeit bills all the time. In other words, it's not just enough just to be familiar with the real, you also have to make an investment in understanding what the the wrong message is. And so the more that we want to understand the wrong message, the more we need to know and live the gospel. The more we know and live the gospel, the more the fake stands out. This is why that if we've encountered Jesus and we've encountered transformation, it's so easy for us to see the need of Jesus in the community. This is good news, folks. When we see the need of Jesus in the community, it's a call to mission. It's a call to presenting Jesus to people. It's a call to invite people into the transformation only Jesus can give. There's a reason that it's so clear. For us in the church, it's really important that we understand I do what I believe. I do what I believe. Jude is a call to action. Okay, now with this, this can seem overwhelming. And, and if you remember in Philemon, like the first week set up the second week, right? The first week is like, like, hey, we're talking about relational connection, but the real ask is gonna come next week. And so last weekend we encountered the real ask and it punched us in the face. It was about radical forgiveness. We're like, oh, even them, I gotta forgive them. This one's kind of in the reverse. He punches us in the face and then next week we're gonna get to the good news, all right? We're gonna get there. But, but we can't just end in this idea, what can I possibly do to combat the onslaught, right? There's this sense of seeming despair, like, oh my goodness, it seems so hopeless. We need to remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit's real world presence makes a deep foundation possible. The Holy Spirit's real world presence makes this possible. It makes it possible. And you need to come back next week to find the steps. Implementation. <laughs> 
He goes to implementation. It, this, this letter presents a, a profound warning and a really simple solution. It's a profound solution, but it's not complicated. And so we're going to talk next week about the uncomplicated solution to a complicated problem. What we're going to do right now, though, is, is it really does require that we would that we would personally embrace Jesus and submit ourselves to Jesus. And so in all of our venues, we're gonna ask a question. And if you're new to Two Rivers, we ask Jesus questions. We believe through the indwelling Holy Spirit that, that he will answer us, that, that, that when we say, Jesus, where have I rejected your authority, that he will give us either a thought, a feeling, a something, maybe a picture in our mind, if we think of pictures, that that will come, that he, that he desires for us to know those types of things. And, and so what we're going to do is I'm gonna ask you not to overcomplicate it. And so if you wanna grab your phone, grab a pen, we're gonna ask Jesus this question, but you're only gonna have 15 seconds max to respond because here's what we do. We take that first thought and we discount that as us and then we overcomplicate it and we're like, was that me? That didn't really sound like a voice or whatever. So I'm just gonna ask you first impression and then on Monday morning, you're gonna ask this same question again and you're gonna have your first impression written down and then you're gonna ask Jesus more questions about it. So this is the question in your life. Right now, you may have been like, and I know in my life, there's areas in my life where I submitted to Jesus and then I take it back. I was just, I'll give you this area of my life, but I'm gonna take this one back. Okay, I'll give that back to you, but I want more of this one. And so right now in your life, okay, not like the forever life, but like right now in your life, in real time, ask Jesus this question. Where have I rejected your authority? Ask him that question. So now you have a chance to review that Monday morning as you jump into to Philemon and then you're gonna go to Second Peter and you're gonna go back to Philemon and then at the end of the week, I mean, into Jude, uh, into Second Peter, back into Jude and then you're gonna go end of the week into a Bible project video where they're gonna go through that video and you're gonna watch it and you're gonna be like, wow, I need to watch that again. And then if you're like me, you're gonna be like, wow, I need to watch that again because there's a lot going on in Jude. It's amazing. There's so much in this power-packed little letter that will shape our lives if we let it. But right now, I'm gonna invite you to stand. All of our venues, I'm gonna invite you to stand. We're gonna worship. Father, we're grateful that you're a God who gives us your very presence to shape how we follow Jesus. And in this moment, we pray that, that you would help us to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's in his name that we pray, amen.